Thank you, Amber. What were you thinking about when she was playing that? I'd rather have Jesus than another hour of sleep. I thought that this morning at, at 7.30, and you know that my mind sometimes doesn't work the way it should, but earlier in the week, I'm about to get up, get up out of bed, and I looked to my left to see if it was clear. Nobody was passing me. I'm like, ay, ay, ay. Pray for Gail as I get older. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, and I'm glad that you would rather have Jesus this morning than anything. And I think that will be a good challenge for us in the days to come. One of the Psalms says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Where's your aspiration focused on your goals? And as our society continues to devolve, I think we're going to be challenged more and more. Do you want Jesus more than anything, more than fame, more than money, more than your very life? It's good to resolve that question now so that when we do face that, we can ask the Holy Spirit to protect us, to keep us. He will keep us. Just a thought. I'd like to welcome you, and I'd like to, I have a bunch of announcements, so I wrote them down. Gail, Sharon, and Julia are on their way back from Aragorn's celebration service yesterday. So as you think about it, pray for their safety as they travel. But they were also on a, on a ministry trip. They went up to comfort the family, to share what Aragorn meant to us, and uh, my wife even made a little booklet with photos and memories uh, to pass on to them. So pray for them. In your bulletin, your worship folder, there's a directory update list. I would like you to fill that out and just leave it in the hymn rack. That way you won't forget and take it home. But we're, we're updating our directory to make sure it's current. We have a business meeting in November, and I have the proposed budget for you, and I'll have that on the back. Please take a copy of it. Remember that Reformation Farms is holding the Fall Fellowship. Is it next week? RSVP, and show up with five or six pies. We have Adult Sunday School, and we're working through this book. It's deep, but it also provides a solid foundation. So I encourage you adults, stop over. And even if you can't make it every week, come in. We also have some free books. There's a free book table downstairs next to a box of free apples, Golden Delicious and Rome Beauty. So they've all been baptized, washed. I'm not sure how sanctified they are. You might find a worm in one of them, just... Throw that aside and say, get thee behind me, Satan. But take a couple apples, if you would. Um, but we also have free books down there and CDs and DVDs. And two ones, two ones that I'm going to put down there are The Believer's Armor, Ephesians 6, by verse by verse by John MacArthur, and another great one, Spiritual Boot Camp. How many of you have gone through Spiritual Boot Camp with John MacArthur? 
ooh, you need this. It's a good series. When I got saved up in Maine as a forester, it was back in the era of cassette tapes. Three channels plus PBS on the TV. I got John MacArthur's spiritual boot camp on cassette tape, and I listened to it in my Ford Ranger pick-me-up truck in the North Woods, and it provided me with a solid foundation as a new believer. So I highly encourage John MacArthur's spiritual boot camp for you. Last but not least, there's no fellowship lunch at the end of the month because we're going to be out at Reformation Farm, and then we're also going to be helping pastor out at the Layton Complex with evangelistic outreach. Thank you guys in the back, too, for um, putting this online. Some of our members, when they're ill, are, have to be out and uh, or traveling even, and they're able to uh, stay in touch with us, and that's great. One uh, is Daryl Bagley. Continue to pray for him as he um, seeks some uh, medical treatment. Uh, but Daryl sent me um, a hymn this week, a hymn that he actually wrote. He listened to last week's sermon. If you remember, it had to deal with Peter's denial and uh, this phrase, particularly about the Jesus um, warning Peter as he, uh, as the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, "Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times." Luke twenty-two sixty-one. Maybe we'll have to get Sharon to sing this for us, but um, here I'll give you a few of the lines that he wrote in this hymn. Peter denied his Lord and rued the day. He knew exactly what his lips did say. He should have knelt and prayed his heart, so help me, my Lord, don't let that rooster crow. There's five verses, I'll read the last. Know that the Lord prays for you every day, and he has given all we need to stay. Trust in his word with all your heart and soul. Help me, my Lord, don't let that rooster crow. Great hymn that he just wrote, and I really appreciate it. It meant a lot to me for him to send it to me. Let's go then to the Lord and ask for help. We need to listen to what the Lord would tell us. We need to hear his voice, hear in the sense of heeding his voice. I'm going to give you a moment privately where you're at to prepare your heart to indeed hear what Christ would say to the church today. So take a moment privately where you're at, prepare your heart, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we have gathered as your people to praise your holy name. You have clearly revealed to us all truth sufficient for life and godliness. I pray that you would work in our heart where we would truly believe. Grant us the faith that we need to 
rely and trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray from the bottom of our souls that we will be able to sing out, filled by the Holy Spirit in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, a heart of great thanksgiving for the very simple things that you have granted to us in life and, and some just incredibly amazing things when we think about them. You're a good God who doesn't repay us in accordance with our faithfulness to you, but in accordance to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And for that, we can cry out to you in great rejoicing. Christ, who has always been faithful and does never deny himself, and therefore we can always be secure in you. I pray for myself and your people, indeed, as we've gathered together, may each aspect of what we do today uh, sink deep down into our hearts, from the singing of praises to you, to hearing the reading of your word, to the explanation of your word as it's proclaimed. May every aspect of what we do, our prayers and our gathering, our fellowship with one another, may we take none of this for granted, but indeed, use all of this to grow us in grace and in the knowledge of you. May Christ be exalted this day, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's take our inserts out of our bulletins and stand as we sing this great, beautiful hymn by Charles Wesley, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my church stands.
Good morning, church. What a beautiful fall day to praise the Lord. This morning we're going to read a long, a long chapter in the book of Psalms. So bear with me, and I've got some water if I've got to stop and take a break. So uh, Psalm chapter 78. If you don't have your Bible this morning, you can turn to page 488 in your pew Bible. Again, that's Psalm chapter 78, page 488 in your pew Bible. Just a couple words to say before this right quick. I, I really can't, again, say it better than, than uh, Dr. John MacArthur. He's just got a great uh, summary of what we're about to read. <clears throat> While everybody's turning, Dr. MacArthur explains, This didact didactic psalm was written to reach, or excuse me, to teach the children how gracious God had been in the past in spite of their ancestors' rebellion and ingratitude. If the children learn well the theological interpretation of their nation's history, hopefully they would not be like their fathers, in verse 8. The psalmist especially focuses on the history of the Exodus. First section is going to be the exhortation on the instruction of children, and we'll see that in verses 1 through 11. The second section will be a lecture on the graciousness of God, verses 12 through 72. 12 through 39 will focus on the rehearsal of Israel's history, and verses 40 through 72 will focus on the reiteration of historical lessons. <clears throat> uh, kind of just what uh, uh, a verse that I focus on this week, um, verse 8, and that they would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So I saw a, a little YouTube clip this week as, I like to keep up with financial things and look at financial things because that's kind of what I do in my job. But uh, one of the top three wealthiest men on earth was speaking, and he, and he brought out a dollar bill. And he's a known, I guess, atheist or agnostic. What's the difference, right? Um, and he brought out a dollar bill, and in our dollar bill and in our currency, everybody knows it says in God we trust, right? On quarters, on dimes, on nickels, et cetera. And so uh, what he pointed out was he said it should really be in government we trust. And, and <laughs> I had to laugh because man is not trustable in any, in any semblance of any degree, and the heart of man is completely wicked. And what graciousness we get from God, none of us deserve. And it kind of reminded me, uh, back in college I used to wait tables, and uh, it took me back 12 or 15 years long ago before children and, and uh, extra weight from being married. But uh, um, uh, there was an, a gentleman that used to come in, and he'd come in twice a week. And he used to scratch off, in God we trust, on all of his money. Any time that he paid, he marked through it with a Sharpie or even scratched it out on quarters, nickels, dimes, pennies. And it just took me back because that was really the first time that I'd seen hatred for God so visibly, right, that... You know, I saw an outward translation of what this man's heart was and his hatred for God. And, you know, the world hates Christ. The world hates God. And it's never going to change. Let's read the Word of God together. And praise God this morning as we read this. Psalm chapter 78. <clears throat> A mascal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. 
Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Amen. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of the battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard he was full of wrath, a fire was kindred against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, in their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenants. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. 
They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which was right, which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows make no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke us from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Let us pray this morning together. I'm going to read Psalm 34, a psalm of thanksgiving. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Father, thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, again today for the ability to be in a country, Lord, where we can worship openly. We don't have to hide, Lord, in huts and underground to worship your name. Lord, we thank you today for so many blessings that you've given us that we don't deserve. We're totally depraved in our sin apart from Jesus Christ, and we deserve death, hell, and the grave forever. But for Christ, you saved us. We want to thank you, Lord, for the sound of children in the church, God. We want to pray today, Lord, for the salvation of our children. Lord, we pray that you give us many opportunities to preach the gospel to our children in word and in action on a daily basis. Lord, help us to live the word faithfully in our homes and set a godly example to glorify Christ. We know that we're coming up on the holidays soon, Lord, and we all have many unbelievers in our families. And Lord, let us shine as a people set apart during these times that we come together and feast and give gifts. Help people see Christ in us. Lord, help us to be servants in every aspect of our lives, Lord, in the workplace, in the marketplace, and most of all in the church together. We ask, Lord, for sound admonition that you continue, Lord, to help us hate our sin daily and sanctify ourselves to become more like Christ. Lord, give us holiness as our hunger. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a hunger to share your name in the world. And Lord, give us opportunities. We ask, Lord, that you break any hard heart here today that doesn't know you. We thank you again, Lord, for a church that desires sound teaching and admonition. We ask that you bring more brothers and sisters in Christ who desire holiness to us. We desire to exalt your name today, Lord, and we ask that you open our hearts and our minds through worship, Lord, first in song, and most of all through the preaching of your word. Lord, we ask that you bless the offering today, Lord, and let us use it for your glory alone. It's in Christ's name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen. 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 Let's continue in song by taking our hymn books and turning to number 96, Great is Thy Faithfulness. His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. 96, great is thy faithfulness.
provide for our every need. Everything that we have, Lord, is a gift from you. And uh, please accept these first fruits as a gift of worship back to you, Lord. May you multiply what is freely given today, Lord, to effectively grow your kingdom. May it all be acceptable to you, Lord. And as we continue in this service, uh, may your peace uh, reign in our lives, Lord, your love surround us. Uh, may the spirit empower us, Lord, in your joy uphold us uh, all through Jesus Christ our Lord in Jesus name amen, amen.
the Lord in song and to hear his word read and prayers made. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's word today into John chapter 18. John chapter 18 will begin at verse 28. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through the gospel of John. We've arrived at this section here. We're on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. Jesus has been betrayed. He has been arrested by a mob consisting of primarily, quote-unquote, the Jews. We'll discuss that further. But understand, this is John's turn, not for just ethnic but also uh, specifically the rulers, the religious and political leaders of Judaism. This mob c- consisted primarily of them, but also the temple police. Roman soldiers were there, and a group of undescribed onlookers, no doubt. Jesus' arrest was by a mob of people, at least a 1,000, I would say, and could be upwards of 2,000. They were equipped with weapons, much more than they needed, yet not enough. If you remember one simple word of Christ, an affirmation of indeed who he was and is in answering their question, When he simply says, I am, and they all fall over. Undeterred with that experience, this mob dusts themselves off and continue as if they are in control, as if they are in authority. They're acting out, of course, their own accord, their desire to kill Jesus. But God had purposed this day before time began. It was according to his very, what we would call, decree, that he decreed that indeed this Judas would betray Jesus, this mob would gather, and that Jesus, with all authority, would submit himself to these people. He would be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. John has been careful to document this fact that Jesus indeed is in control. In John's gospel, we'll hear a recurring theme from Jesus as we read up to this point, that he has a certain hour. It is this hour, this hour now. This group has continually tried to do away with Jesus. They tried to kill him before this hour, but they were unsuccessful because, as Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. They were able to move forward now, arrest him, and put him on trial because now was the time for Jesus to lay down his life. John 10, 17, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. That charge, if you will, this is what we use the term, the decree of God. This is God's design, and Christ is always in charge. Never miss that. He's even in charge right now. You may not be aware of it. You may not be conscious of it or thinking about it. But he upholds all things by the word of his power, even right now. Jesus submits himself, as we've seen then, to this unruly mob, hateful men, wicked men, whose desire from their own heart is to carry out the murder of Jesus. Jesus has dealt with them before, this very group. He's spoken to them directly. Remember, in, and I'll just read you one little section. He has already charged this group with guilt. They are there gathered together to declare that Jesus is guilty. The one in authority has already told them that they are guilty. Matthew records seven woes, that is seven judgments against them. I'll read an example of it from Matthew 23, 27. To these very people who orchestrated this event that Jesus submits to in order to lay down his life and then take it back up in resurrection. He says to this very group earlier, woe to you. This is a prophetic voice of judgment and condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Doesn't mince words, does he? Hypocrites is key because you'll see that played out as John records these historical events here in chapter 18. But Jesus calls them hypocrites. And he explains, you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others. But within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That is, they are the lawbreakers, as we've already discovered in this quote-unquote religious trial. It is illegal, and they're breaking God's law. They're breaking the own law that they instituted. This illegal trial that the this religious political group called the Jews by John demonstrate the veracity of Jesus' statement. They are the ones that are lawless. They are the ones who are then indeed hypocritical. These charlatans, this group, they're now finished. Where We're picking up here in verse 28 in John 18. They've already finished with their predetermined verdict. They were seeking to execute Jesus. And they came up with the verdict that they had desired. They wanted Jesus gone. They wanted him dead. And so, if you remember, they proclaimed 
that Jesus then committed blasphemy, which would have been a capital offense under the law. Jesus did affirm by oath when asked, indeed, he is Messiah, he is God incarnate. They didn't bother examining those claims that we talked about a few weeks ago. If they did, and if they did by their own standards, by their own laws, if they weren't hypocritical and lawless, if they would have followed their own guidance, they would recognize that indeed Jesus' terms, his statements here would be absolutely vindicated. We went through that. They had no desire for that. Sinful men cannot bear the truth. The facts are just something that gets in your way unless they can be manipulated to and twisted to support their own ideologies. They demonstrate their lawlessness by declaring that Jesus is guilty. They are hypocritical. They are the ones of great guilt. At this point, in this religious Jewish trial by the rulers of the Jews, declaring that Jesus had blasphemed, you know what they should have done? Picked up stones and began to stone him. If they were really following their law. Instead, we're going to pick it up here in verse 28 and find out what they do after they give this predetermined verdict. They don't pick up stones. They, they don't throw Jesus down. Instead, they frog march him over to Pilate, the Roman procurator. And looking at this, you say, well, why? And I'd answer this is multifaceted. And as we go through this text, which I'm going to read in your hearing, you're going to see some what I would call penultimate reasons why, for sure. In other words, from their own heart, their own desires, why these folks are doing what they're doing. Why is Pilate doing what he's doing and why the Jews are doing what they're doing. But never forget the ultimate. They're doing what God has decreed. Jesus has the authority to lay down his life. And can I remind you, he has the authority to raise it up again. And all of those who will one day lay down your life, if you're in Christ, he has the authority to raise it up again. And he will demonstrate that as our narrative continues in just a few days. So let's look at this narrative and I'm going to read much of it just prior to the crucifixion so that you can kind of get the flow. This is not what we would call didactic teaching to the church where we would read some charges and then explain those. This is a story, if you will. That's what we mean by narrative. And yeah, I'll just grab a piece of it today and we'll see how much we can squeeze in, if you will, because there's much. So there will be at least another part two or three. 
But I do want you to hear it in its totality, so this will be in your mind. I know you generally know the story, but it's helpful to read it from the text, at least the way John presents it, and remind ourselves of what's going on. So we'll begin at verse 28. The religious trial has ended. Now we're moving to the civil trial. These leaders are bringing Jesus to Pilate. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, Well, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one for you at the Passover, so you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Let's flip over to chapter 19 and continue. Well, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out And said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, behold, the man. And the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take them yourself and crucify him for 
I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself out to be the son of God. And Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you is greater, has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not a friend, Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So then Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at the place called the stone of pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that you would grant us wisdom from your word. May we hear and heed these very words of Christ this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wanted to read this in your hearing, and I encourage you to reread it on your own in preparation for the days ahead. This narrative includes a number of characters, as we've already discussed in the prior section, Annas, and then, of course, Caiaphas is mentioned here. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, hypocritical and lawless in, in their judgment, Now Pilate comes on the scene, and I hope you've already seen here, it seems to be a bit strange in the dialogue back and forth between the Jews and Pilate. But don't miss in your reading who stands out the most. It is Christ. Really, all, about, all of this is about Christ. Caiaphas doesn't count. Sanhedrin doesn't matter. Neither really does Pilate. They're just backdrops of lawless and wayward men who were outshone by the glory of Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, states it this way, although Pilate, in speaking of our section 28 and following, is the only figure who appears in every scene, it is Jesus himself and the nature of his kingdom that occupy the center stage. Look for that. Look for Christ. 
To put it in perspective, though, we do need to examine and re-examine some of these characters that are going back and forth who occupy most of the conversation, if you will. Notice in verse 28 that they mention here, that they, of course, as I had previously said, is the Jews. These are ostensibly religious leaders, but more political than anything else. John just simply calls them the Jews. They are ethnically Jewish, but this is the leadership, the council, the political class. There is really no separation as we have a tendency to think about it in our culture of church and state. They were one and the same. Even among the pagans, they just had pagan gods that they were part of their um, civil system. So nevertheless, here they gather together. They have this religious trial, if you will, that is illegal, and they bring Jesus to Pilate to put him to death. This, by the way, would not be a charge that would be blasphemy under Roman law. Blasphemy in your own religious tradition, if you will. This is not punishable by death under Roman law. So, initially, it is strange that they bring him to Pilate and the other gospel writers. I won't go into detail a bit, but they come up with all kinds of charges. They're trying to get Jesus on and and finally um, admit that it's over blasphemy because this would not be a charge that would really bother Rome a whole lot. They gave the Jews quite a bit of latitude, as we'll discover as well. Note John, though, in his text, he does talk about them bringing Christ then to this Roman governor. And John notes that it is very early morning, verse 28. This, again, highlights the hypocrisy of Christ's detractors for which he had already spoken woe or judgment against them. The, as we discussed this trial before, many, many aspects were illegal. You couldn't carry on this Jewish trial at night that was against their law. And in fact, once a verdict was in, they were supposed to quote-unquote sleep on it and maybe debate it over days rather than immediately put somebody to death. A rush to judgment here, though, this vote gets taken early in the morning, maybe somewhere around 6 a.m., Early in the morning, at daybreak then, they come to this Roman governor to turn Jesus over to him. Perhaps they do so just simply to um, uh, be first in line, if you will. Also knowing that the, uh, uh, the Roman governors in this sense often would begin their day very early and also end it very early as well. So they don't want to miss this opportunity to put Jesus to death on this very day. So at the crack of dawn, first in line, here they are to get Jesus on the docket. They go to, note the text here, it does say the governor's headquarters. This is a Greek transliteration from the old Latin, which means the praetorium. It is the headquarters of a Roman officer. 
Pilate himself normally as the governor of this region would have been in Caesarea in Herod the Great's former uh, palace, but he would come often to Jerusalem at a time of great um, feasts and so forth. It was nice and coincidental that he happened to be here, but I digress. Here he is. No coincidence at all, right? He is here. They typically would come in these big events, I, I think, to be there in case some something uh, arose that they had to deal with. But I also think to kind of show off how important they were since all these crowds were coming in. That's just my own idea. Take it for what it is. But notice here what happens. They come early to the governor's quarters, but here's some hypocrisy. They themselves, note the text, they didn't enter into the governor's quarters. And why not? So that they would not be defiled. They could eat the Passover. By the way, the Passover would be more than just the meal. It would be the whole season here, the festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It would be a way of describing that. They could not participate in that if they went into this Gentile's house. They already were defiled. They were already under the judgment of Christ. Their actions showed that they were defiled. They feigned that they were clean on the outside, but on inside they were full of dead man's bones. They were literally rotten to the core. By the way, this whole idea of not going into a Gentile's house, therefore it would defile them, is simply a made-up tradition. You're going to find that in the Mishnah. You're not going to find that in the Bible. It's just something that they came up with, concluding, oh, well, in the Gentiles' house, there might be some yeast, for example, and that would defile me. Or there might be some dead body. They would have aborted their fetuses and perhaps left them around and throw them down the drain in that respect. So all kinds of extrapolations, if you will, so they had to be extra careful. They excluded themselves even further from engaging with Gentiles by not going in, in here, if you will, so that they wouldn't be defiled. They were hypocritical. And so following, they're in violation of God's own word. They make up and follow their own traditions. No wonder Christ would cry out to them, woe, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. This other character, we've, we know about this group, the ruler of the Jews and those that are part of the Sanhedrin. But we're introduced to this governor in a greater degree in verse 29. And let's look at his character. That would be Pilate. Pilate accommodates them by going outside. They're not coming in. They're hanging outside because they don't want to defile themselves. So Pilate then, he, verse 29, he goes out to them. And he brings up the statement, what accusation do you bring against this man? 
And then their response is, they don't tell Pilate whatever accusation they have. They just said, are you impugning my motives? <laughs> Our motives, should I say, that as a group. We wouldn't have brought him to you if, if there wasn't some legitimate reason. Are you questioning us? By the way, this phraseology too, when he says, what accusation do you bring? It means he's not going to rubber stamp whatever they did. By making this statement and why they're so offended of it, he said, well, I'm going to then do my own investigation and see if this guy is guilty. Well, guess what? They all stand in there know he's not guilty. So, They've got to find some other way to get him executed. They don't want Pilate to examine their trial and what they went through. The only thing they could hold Jesus on was the truth, that he is God incarnate, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So Pilate questions their findings. He questions them. He does his own inquisition, if you will. Now, who is Pilate? Well, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version, if you will. Herod the Great, from this period of time, who was neither Jewish nor Roman, he was an Idumean, he ruled this area around the time Jesus was born. You'll hear about him historically because of all the monuments that he built to himself. <laughs> he built and redid all these buildings in the surrounding area so that it would be a lasting memorial to him, including the temple. In any case, he died. When Herod the Great died, he divided this territory, this region, to his sons. One of them, Archelaus, was over this particular area in Jerusalem. It would be Judea, Samaria, and a surrounding area. This son, Archelaus, was awful. He was really a tyrant. And in fact, I'd have to add, though, the others govern much more in the countryside, and you can already see these Jews, in this sense, the rulers here, these are a formidable folk that have their own idea about how things are going to be done. But nevertheless, history records that he was quite the tyrant, Archelaus. These same Jews then went to Rome. They then requested that he would be deposed and that they instead would put a Roman governor in place. Well, request was granted. They put Roman governors in this region, and that's where Pilate comes in. Pilate was one of those governors in a succession of governors. Pilate married the youngest daughter of Julia, who was the daughter of Emperor Augustus. And he applied for and was granted this governorship, if you will, in Judea around A.D. 26. The time and the recording here in John is about four years later. Pilate replaced and followed five previous governors who 
came and went for various reasons. It was a difficult job in many respects. The governor's responsibility was somehow to keep the peace, if you will. Rome was tolerant of the areas that they conquered, and obviously there would be a uh, a logistical issue with trying to disperse uh, troops in high numbers all over the place. So they allowed some of the existing people to essentially govern themselves, but they oversaw it. And that was the strategy put here in place, and specifically it was through Roman governors. They expected peace and to keep things in order. The governor that was put in place, in this case, would have been Pilate. He was expected to kind of mediate and keep things going well. Pilate wasn't very good at this. His character is that he's a mean, vindictive, and cruel man. Not much like the tyrants that he might have replaced. There are a number of things you can read about to talk about Pilate, what he did, and so forth, and who he is. But, uh, but I think, given the commentaries I read and the historical records, um, most of them summarize three big events in Pilate's life in relationship to these Jews that help us get a perspective on what's going on here in this back and forth battle here in this trial early on and why these Jews then uh, are so enraged that they would, inc- they would question his integrity a bit of authority that they may have had and earned in the relationships that they have. James Boyce does a good summary on these three events that Pilate, think of it as his blunders in his governorship. The first one is when he just arrives. When he gets this governorship early on, just a few years earlier, he sends soldiers by night carrying signs, flags, emblazoned with the images of Tiberius. Now, this would have been a problem for the Jews because of idolatry. Remember, the entire northern kingdom got wiped out because of why? Idolatry. The southern kingdom, this area, they learned their lesson. And so one of the things that was really important among the Jews as they governed themselves was not to have any graven images, not to have any idolatry. Tiberius would have been thought of in the pagan world, in the Roman world, as a god. So you see what Pilate's doing when he first comes in? By the way, he brings them in at night so he can kind of sneak it in so it's not a big deal. The next thing you know, they wake up in the morning and here's all these flags with this idol on it. poking them, impressing what his will is going to be, if you will. Not really sensitive to them at all. Well, of course, what's their response when they wake up and see these things? Well, they demand that they be removed. And Pilate refuses. So they decide to go see Pilate. Remember, he's not in Jerusalem. He's, he sends flags over there, but he's in Caesarea. So they go on down and spend about five days 
in front of his house, complaining, protesting, and getting angry. So Pilate says, well, I don't know how to deal with them. He says, I'll negotiate with you. Let's get to a good meeting place. Let's go to the stadium. You know, where they have these games where they kill people and so forth. So they go to the stadium, this amphitheater, and get together. As they gather together, surrounding them are a bunch of Roman soldiers then file in. Pilate says, you guys pack up and go home and forget about what I did and you'll live. If not, we're going to slaughter you right here and now. To his surprise, they call his bluff and they all lay down and bare their necks and say, go ahead, chop off our heads. Well, that wouldn't be a good message of negotiation to get back to Rome, (laughs) would it? Because... Pilate might lose his head over that, creating that mass massacre. Pilate loses. Another big event that they would have been reminded of is Pilate thinks, well, you know, this little town could sure use some fresh water. So he wants to bring from the pools of Solomon an aqueduct. All right. Good enough. But he needs money. And he looks over at the temple and says, hmm, they got a big old box full of money. I think I'll help myself. And indeed he does. The money that he grabs, and you may have heard of it in Scripture and other places, was called Corbin. That is, they set this money aside in the treasury to be only used for God. And here, Pilate then grabs the money that was intended for God, and he is going to use it to build his aqueduct. Well, that upsets them highly, and they gather again to protest this time, Pilate's learned his lesson about calling their bluff, and so he sneaks in a few people that are dressed and look that way. Not Roman, Roman soldiers, but not the looking in the Roman soldiers' guard, instead having swords and clubs, and secretly begin to start killing and massacring the people. He had his way with them, but that created great bitter hostility which exists right now as they begin this confrontation. The third event that most people note is this other bright idea that Pilate has and not a lot of time has elapsed. These are two major things. Well, here's the third major thing that he does. He decides, well, we ought to build some shields and put the graven image of Tiberius on it. The flag thing didn't work, but maybe these shields might. Whatever. So he's going to make those. He puts those up. And of course, they object as well. This time, the Jews learn what to do better, and they complain directly to Tiberius. Tiberius has had enough of it, and he says, take them away. Quit irritating the people. That's what I'm saying. This is the character of this guy. 
he continues to impose and do dumb things like this. And there's a sense in which he enjoys putting his thumb on him if he can, but he, it continually fails and it gets removed. Well, that's where we're at now. By the way, in the, the biblical writers do mention some of the evil characteristic of Pilate. You'll find it in Luke chapter 13. There were, and I'll read it, there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose, Pilate, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. He was always doing cruel, vindictive, and corrupt things. That's the kind of guy this was. He was really a tyrant, and he really wasn't all that good at it. He's a pagan. He's an unbeliever. But do you remember picking up on something that he said in the text that I just read? I'll highlight it for you. Look at verse 38. What is Pilate's analysis of Jesus that is brought before him? I find no guilt in him. This cruel, vindictive, proud, corrupt. I find no guilt. Verse 4 of chapter 19, the next chapter, he brings Christ down and he says this declaration in his trial. What? I find no guilt in him. And so that John reminds us that we don't miss it. It's said one more time. Did you see it? In verse 6 of the same chapter, 19. He says, take him yourself, for I find no guilt in him. He wants to end his involvement and give him back to the Jews. He's done with them. In fact, he said that early on in verse 31 of 18, right? Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. He's giving them permission Then, if you want to deal with him, deal with him. I don't find any guilt in him. I'm not going to put him on the cross. I'm not going to crucify him. This is an innocent man. If you have something against him, deal with it yourself. Why? Why is Pilate so reluctant to kill Jesus? He has no problem killing the Galileans, why they're worshiping. He has no problem sending out thugs to murder people in a crowd. If he could have gotten away with it, he would have done mass execution at the stadium. But what's going on here? Well, as I mentioned earlier, really, there's not a charge that, you know, he can really act on, but... Does Pilate, you really think he cares that much about the law? Maybe, maybe not. This wasn't a law, this wasn't an, a, a charge that Rome needs to take care of. You can see Acts 19, for example, another circumstance in which Rome says, take care of yourself. But he was superstitious to some degree, and perhaps his wife had something to do with it. That would be Pilate's wife. 
I'll read it from you from Matthew 27, where Matthew describes that while Pilate's on this judgment seat, his wife sends a word to him and says, Have nothing to do with it, that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. I would have thought a lot about that kind of message. Maybe he was spooked to some degree. Perhaps as I thought about it, he might have wanted to just be vindictive to these group. He didn't want to give them what they wanted. Clearly, they wanted to get this done, and Pilate's like, hmm, you really want that? Well, you wouldn't let me have my flags and, and my graven image and, and my aqueduct without giving me a lot of hassle. I'll tell you what, you go do it yourself. I, I don't know. I'm just speculating what his motives might have been. Penultimately, verse 31. The Jews tell why they say it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's, that's why they want Pilate to do something about it. Pilate says, you do it. And they said, well, we can't because it's not lawful. Now, under their law, and you can find that in Leviticus 24, 16. I'll read it. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. That is the law that they're under. Okay? All the congregation shall stone him. Even the method of execution is given. To stone, and the, and the imagery they use is to throw them down because they're on the ground, right? And then they just keep heaving stones on them till they're piled up. Pilate gives them permission. They tried to stone Jesus before. Do you remember reading it? I'll give you two places, 859 of this gospel. When they got riled up with Jesus, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 1031, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So they wanted to stone before, and later on in the, after this event in the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, they're mad at him, and what do they do to Stephen? They stone him, these same people. So why are they not stoning Jesus, given permission by Rome? And why is Pilate declaring Jesus not guilty and trying really hard to set him free? We'll get into more of that next time. Some have speculated that the Jews wanted to make Rome culpable, perhaps, Maybe they feared a backlash from this fickle crowd who one day said, Hosanna, save us now, and the next day said, crucify him. Perhaps they wanted him to be recognized as someone who was cursed, cursed on a tree. But I'll tell you the real reason why, and our text does tell us, do you see verse 32? It answers that question for both. The ultimate reason why Pilate acts like he does and why these Jews act like they do, it is because Christ is in charge. Christ lays down his life. He is the authority to do it. And he has also, by the way, the authority to bring it back up. 
demonstrating that he has the authority to lay it down is right now, which, which again, he's got to deal with these casts of unscrupulous, evil, wicked, hypocritical people, and Jesus stands there, in some cases, just silently guiding all of it to be accomplished. Oh, they do exactly what is in their heart to do. But all of these fulfill what Christ had said. Do you see verse 32? It tells us the why. That's the ultimate why. It is to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The law prescribes how a blasphemer should die by stoning. Pilate gives them permission to stone him. But if they did, right now, at this very hour, you know what would have happened? You could declare Jesus not God and not the Messiah because he would have been a liar. John twelve thirty one. When I am lifted up, it's a euphemism for hanging on a cross, not thrown down to be stoned. When I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The reason they couldn't stone him and the reason Pilate tried to free him, nevertheless, even though he declared him not guilty, he still sends him to be crucified, violating his own decree that he is not guilty because Christ said that this is how he was going to die. Because Christ is in authority. He's always in authority. Peter will later preach to this gathered group in Jerusalem after the resurrection. And he'll charge them this in Acts 2.23, that Christ Jesus was delivered up, that is, arrested by this mob, sent through this illegal religious trial, sent to Pilate. Why? He was delivered up according to the definite foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They were guilty, but God determined this to happen for a purpose. To demonstrate, beloved, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. The charge Christ told in his teaching in John 12 was that he said, the light's among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light lest the darkness overtakes you. You can believe Christ in everything he said. I was thinking about it this morning, praying with the prayer group before church began and talking to one of my fellow elders about this very thing. It hit me more than anything. And I'll finish with this because I'm beyond time, but hey, this might be worth hearing. Jesus is the only one who tells the whole truth, all the truth, and nothing but. Because he's God. Can I give you a word that he gives you then today? 
that is demonstrated in how he orchestrated all of these events, even with evil men who have totally different intentions about all that they're doing. Christ stands among them in the absolute truth. Can I give you a word of Christ this morning? And based on that, I hope your actual belief in it is, increases. Here's what he would say to the church. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it, if it weren't so, I, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, I am right now, you will be there also. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we're thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who endured an untold amount of humiliation and shame. For a purpose. He bore the humiliation, shame, torture, and death, yes, death, that we all deserve for our failure. Our failure, our rebellion against you. I pray, Father, that we would put our confidence and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And for those that have indeed done so, maybe some even hearing my voice now would put their trust in Christ. But for those of us who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, I pray you give us a greater degree of faith to truly believe. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, you may take a moment now to privately reflect and respond, not to me, but to Christ. If you need to speak with one of the elders afterwards, we're available here for you. Take a moment privately where you're at. to grant us grace enough to truly believe all the words of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 550 in our hymnals. Footsteps of Jesus. 550. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For you were called to this so that you should follow his
we pray that the God of all hope will fill us with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you from this time forth and forevermore. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.